Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey everyone, Clarissa here, and do we have another great episode for you today. Last week, we dove into the power of the mind with Victoria Hama. This week, we're diving into the power of the body. But first, if you enjoyed that hypnosis recording and it seemed to help something shift for you, then you might be interested in signing up for Victoria's four-week workshop starting June 5th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, it's a Monday, called The Invisible Power Within, Subconscious Drivers Behind Addiction. You'll get four recorded modules jam-packed with how to empower your mind, and each module has a separate hypnosis practice for you to keep. You'll get to meet with Victoria one-on-one in four live sessions, and these will also be recorded but should not be missed. This is a steal of a deal. Victoria usually charges $150 a session, and you'll be getting four hours live with her plus the recorded practices for only $50 US. You can sign up at sweetsobriety.ca. Now today we dive into the power of the body and the importance of nervous system regulation with Rachel Lewis Marlowe. Rachel is co-founder and director of the Embodied Recovery Institute. She is a somatically integrative psychotherapist, duly licensed in counseling and therapeutic massage and bodywork. She is a certified advanced practitioner in sensory motor psychotherapy and has advanced training plus 25 years of experience in diverse somatic therapies. Rachel began her work with eating disorders in residential treatment programs. There, she developed the Embodying Recovery Group Therapy Protocol, which forms the basis for the Embodied Recovery for Eating Disorders Treatment Model. In this episode, we discuss polyvagal theory, embodiment, the importance of being in relationship, and the action cycle, clarity, effectiveness, satisfaction, relaxation. This episode starts off a little theory dense, but please hang in there. This episode is gold. Getting embodied and into a state of interceptive awareness is where we can finally tune in to what we need and hear what our bodies are trying to tell us. This is where recovery happens. Eating disorders, food addiction, disordered eating are all related to an imbalance within the entire nervous system, sensory system, and self. These behaviors are and have always been just a way to manage the internal system and find a deeper connection within oneself and to one's spirit. Today, you'll get to actually hear it happen. You won't want to miss the role-playing that Rachel does with Vera in relating to cravings for a binge. It was remarkable to witness the shift physically in Vera during this practice. I've always known her as leaning into being very brain-based. Here, I witnessed her soften and go from brain-based to body-based and regulated. You can even hear it in her voice. So without further ado, welcome Rachel Lewis Marlowe. So tell us about yourself and how you got, first of all, into the the world of eating disorders, and then specifically where you uh, found this whole ventral vagal system way of thinking and how that might apply. I actually, I think I had an interest in eating disorders initially because it felt like it was a place of an intersection of mind and body work, right? I mean, it's 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 happening in the body. It's right there. But I didn't actually get involved in working with people who were on an eating disorder recovery journey until after I had completed at least, I think the first part of my sensory motor psychotherapy training. And I was approached by a residential and partial hospitalization program here in North Carolina that was really interested in working with addressing trauma from a body-based approach, a bottom-up approach in conjunction with eating disorders. So that was how I was recruited to come and and work at this residential program. And 
what I was seeing kind of being a newbie in some ways to that field, the traditional way of approaching it was that while there were some things that were really powerful and I think effective, there was something that was really, really missing. And it seemed to be an understanding of how the body communicates. And so there was a lot of interpretation of the way the body was being organized and then responded to that resulted in eating disorder behaviors. Um, I just thought, whoa, what if we looked at it from this other angle? You know, we would be seeing something very different and we might want to approach and dialogue with this human being very differently. And so I began a group that was based in a lot of of some of the, the maps that came from sensory motor psychotherapy, but also maps that I had brought in from other body-based approaches that I have studied, in particular, body-mind centering, which was developed by Bonnie Brainbridge Cohen, and her map of what is now called the relational cycle of movement. And I was weaving together these maps and really seeing how people were embodied. How were they landing in their bodies? How were their bodies landing in the room? And what were we as providers doing to help facilitate co-regulation of the nervous system? Okay, so before we get too into that, because that's exactly what we want to sort of flesh out, I just want to get a little bit more background with you. Uh, but actually, can I just say, though, as you're talking, the, the, the thing that comes to mind is the Gabor Mate's book, I think it's called When the Body Says No, or I think it was him who wrote that book. Is that is that along the lines of what you're talking about, or is this an entirely different perspective? I don't think it's entirely different. I think that there's a lot of Venn diagram and... and yeah, okay. And, and a lot of people... Are I think what in, what I did in conjunction with my former business partner Paula Scataloni, she and I really sussed out this weaving is is taking these these models and these maps that were kind of coming and from different angles and that were seen as addressing maybe comorbidities or separate parallel processes, and we said, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what if these aren't parallel processes? What if these are radiant processes, all coming out of a a common hub? How do we weave this together? How do we find the center of this, the central dynamic that's being expressed in many different ways? And how do we start to work with that? Okay, it sounds to me like we need to get to exactly what you're talking about. But if I can just step back one more minute, for people who are listening, who are identifying as food addiction and not eating disorder, I'm assuming what you're going to talk about will still be relevant to us, right? Because it's basically the body telling us something. And you're saying, here's the map, or here are various maps to understanding that. Yeah, absolutely. And um I, I we, yeah, I'm really glad that we can maybe talk just a little bit about, you know, what is eating disorders? Mm-hmm. What is food addiction? What is, you know, who knows what else? I mean, there's so many different ways that Absolutely. we can. And, and I think where I land is that different lenses help us see different things. Even if we're looking at the same object, mm-hmm. a lens that we look through helps us to see certain things. And I think that my understanding of the lens of food addiction, what it helps to see, helps us see is the bottom up scaffold, the process of how the body is holding capacity so that we can't make these changes just by changing our thoughts. You know, it's not like, You can just think your way into moderation, whatever that word means, you know? So it's really saying, you know, there's there's something happening on a body level. I think the other thing that the food addiction lens helps to illuminate is the experience of highly sensitive people, of people whose nervous systems respond Mm -hmm. strongly to different stimuli. And in particular, in this case, internal stimuli or metabolic stimuli. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is the bridge, isn't it? Like in ways that, you know, other people, it may not, right. They, you know, their bodies don't respond that way. 
And so I think that it allows people, it seems like it allows people to engage with a process of of growth and change in a way that reduces shame around this, what other people might call a lack of impulse control. And so it, it invites engagement. And it I think for some people, it's really empowering because it says, no, wait, there's a place where I can engage and I do get to be effective. And I get to decide how I interact with stimuli to which I have a very strong response. Okay. I think there's a, there's a, something that's very important for us, though, as we go on with this, is that we also have to acknowledge that if we look at the addiction model, the food addiction model, through a slightly different lens, there can be a lot of weaponization. And so when we look at it through, say, the diet culture lens or the fat phobia lens, there are people who are very harmed by it. And so I just want to hold that because I think you know some people in the in the eating disorder, when they're looking at things from an eating disorder lens, yes, they see the food addiction as negating and disempowering. Whereas people from the who feel empowered by food addiction see the eating disorder lens as very disempowering. You know, so I'm a real firm believer that, you know, there's something can be 100% true without being 100% of the truth. You know, I I love that term that you use about the weaponization. I think you're so right that that happens in the academic communities and particularly between the eating disorder and uh, food addiction models. So thank you for raising that up. That's that's just fabulous. So you're talking about stuff, maps and Venn diagrams. Before we get into the clinical stuff, give us the uh, sensory motor psychotherapy 101 central concepts that you would just, just so that we know what you're talking about. Yeah, let's define some terms. So embodied recovery for eating disorders is a synthesis of a bunch of different maps, some of which came through sensory motor psychotherapy. And I think one of the the maps that I think is super powerful and super helpful is a map of... So let me say, okay, so what is sensory motor psychotherapy? Sensory motor psychotherapy is a body of work that was developed by Pat Ogden. And it is a body-based method, way of facilitating change from a psychotherapeutic discipline, right? That's really looking at the impact of the state of the body, whether it's it's organized, you know, how the nervous system is organized and where we are in our attachment and our defense system, and how these patterns that we develop over time can hold us either in a state of regulation and in present moment experience or can be a reliving through somatic memory of past experiences. Anyway, it's and so it's a very beautiful way of facilitating mindful awareness of what's happening in the present moment in the body and facilitating change at a very core level. If I can, if I can just say, from a medical point of view, what you're talking about, it, it brings to mind, is this a way that I can apply the knowledge of the sort of autonomic nervous system, which includes both the sympathetic stress response and the parasympathetic relaxation response, and learning how to harness both of those towards our good? I think I would say yes. <laughs> and I think the important piece, one important piece of this throughout whatever discipline we're talking about or whichever model we're talking about is that the way in which we harness that and the power of that is through our own system as providers. It's in our presence. Hmm. As much as what we are saying, it's how we say it. It's much of what we are suggesting for our clients to do behaviorally. We have to embody ourselves because, and this goes straight to polyvagal. So I'm wondering if I should. Yes, please do. Let's let's go. Which one? Go straight to polyvagal. Uh, yeah. Well, we want to get there. I, I don't know what else. Let's do polyvagal, and then we'll go back to some of these other maps. Okay. Okay. Sure. So now I am not a, a neuroscientist. So I am going to probably truncate the nuances of this. Please do. 
in terms of anatomical and physiological. Our, our listeners, our listeners are also not neuroscientists. So that's when, I'm teaching, when I'm teaching, yes. and I've got these, the, right? These these providers are like I don't know. I didn't do. You know, I'm a social scientist. I didn't yeah. do that. What I try and say is okay. So, in a nutshell, what polyvagal theory is saying is something that you already know, and that is relationship matters. Um, that's what it's saying in terms of like the takeaway <laughs> for us as, as providers is something we have known and we know, you know, we've known for centuries is that relationship matters. We function differently when we are in relationship with people who feel safe, supportive, nourishing, nurturing, than when we are with people who feel dangerous or unsupporting or toxic, right? Our own nervous system is different. We function differently. And so what it's looking at, what polyvagal theory is like, it's a lens that helps us look at that phenomenon neurologically. And it's saying that, you know, normally we talk about this on autonomic nervous system as having sympathetic and parasympathetic. And that anatomically we can think of the parasympathetic nervous system as being governed in large part by this vagus nerve. And what Steve Porges is saying, I hope I'm getting this right, <laughs> is that, that that vagus nerve has two branches. So it's kind of got these two different settings of parasympathetic. It's not all or nothing, you know, and that that one branch, the ventral vagal branch, which is evolutionarily sort of the more recent branch, right? This is more mammalian than reptilian, mm -hmm. is a branch of the nervous system that is connected to how we take in information about the world around us, what we might consider our social engagement, part of our social engagement system. And when we say social engagement, it's not just like person-to-person -person talking, right? It's like, how do I relate to the world around me? In body language and stuff like that. Well, body language, but it's it's how we do that. How do we perceive through our far senses, our hearing, our sight, our smell, right? Taste, touch. These are all our far senses. And the ventral vagal has a lot to do with the, you know, with, with above the diaphragm, around the heart, the heart function and, and this, our face and our ears. And so it is most of the information in the, from the vagus nerve is coming as afferent. It's coming from the world up into the brain. Mm -hmm. And that ventral vagal system is taking in the environment around us, taking in people. And when that information that's coming in is registering not cognitively, not in the frontal cortex, but you know, very low in the brain, very automatic. This is what he calls neuroception. When that stimuli registers in the brain as nutritious, and I mean nutritious in terms of like, it feeds me, it's safe, it's resonant, it's kind, it's, it's something to be in relationship with as mammals, you know, we, we kind of need relationship, right? So when when that's what's coming in the ventral system, then the way in which my sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems work is very supportive of each other. Like I can inhale and I can exhale in balance. However, if the information that's coming in through that ventral vagal system is indicating that I cannot connect or I should not connect with this, this, this external stimuli, my sympathetic and parasympathetic functions are not going to be in balance that way. I may be breathing in more than I'm breathing out, or I may right in a more sympathetic state, or I may go into a more dorsal state, a more kind of low function, right? A quiet state. A quiet. That's that's and, and when we take that into our defense system, not our connection system, but our how do I separate from danger system? Uh -huh. That goes into the sympathetic fight or flight and kind of a high freeze, like I'm ready versus that low freeze or feign death, which is so, the only okay. way to survive is to basically shut down. 
So I just want to check. So, so that's that distinction between stress response and relaxation response is too simplistic. It sounds like when we talk about the stress response being the sympathetic and the parasympathetic being all about the relaxation response. It, it sounds like it's the relaxation. The ventral is more than just relaxation. It's engaged and relaxed. Okay. All right. And what was the other piece? You, you had the ventral and you said there were two parts the dorsal, of the dorsal, which is, which is this older branch. And that's the part that, that we often think of as the, you know, the long. Oh yeah. Branch. Okay. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, that yeah. goes and really works subdiaphragmatically. Right? And this works with our digestive system. Right. Mm. And so, you know, depending upon what's happening in the social engagement part, the neuroreceptive part. Right, you know, then we're going to see is this subdiaphragmatic function of the vent of the vagus nerve in balance, Got it. or is it out of balance? And you know, we're just shut down. And so, this is where I, you know, it, it comes down to our relationship with food and our relationship with people runs on the same neural platform. Mm. It's all about relationship. And that to me is the hub. That right there is the hub. Is what we're talking about is our capacity for relationship. How can we effectively engage or disengage, right? Because being in relationship is also saying, okay, I need a little bit of, of space or I need distance, right? And those are two different things. Does that also include relationship with body? It includes relationship with everything. It includes relationship with thoughts. It includes relationship with emotions. It includes, you know, internal in stimuli. So, so that that dorsal vagal, right, is is also primarily afferent. So there's a lot of information coming up from the gut to the brain. And I think one of the things that we want to include in this, and which is why, you know, there's the the Polyvagal theory is super important, but we have to also remember that information is transmitted through the through the body, not just through the nervous system, right? And highly sensitive people, nervous information, especially energetic vibration, is transferred through vibration of hair follicles directly into the fascia. And so the fascia itself is vibrating. And then so, so, and that can go very internal. What do you mean by fascia? Now? You mean like skin? No, the the connective tissue. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, I see. So the information comes out, and then and then the body has this vibration response. Yeah, and it's vibrating all the way into the into the into the gut, right? Oh, so okay. People who are very, very like you know, just they they can walk into a room and just feel <laughs> the energy there, like oh, something's going on. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges is that the it's like the sensory receptor is in their in inside their body, and so then they are they are feeling that interoceptively, which is not a far sense. That's a near sense. That's what tells me about myself. And yet, it's very hard sometimes to differentiate. And what I'm feeling inside actually me, or what's going on outside of me. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Essentially, like there is so much noise in our world that we live in all the time. And so a practice like this would be great if we could do this in like, you know, a place where it's perfectly quiet all the time and there was no inputs all the time. But how does one sort out through all of this? Well, and I will say that for me, the study of massage and body work was a place where I learned skills to go with that sensitivity, where I had to be able to start to really differentiate, okay, is what I am feeling me or outside of me? And how do I start to cultivate capacity to receive that information outside of me rather, I mean, to perceive it rather than receive it? And culturally, we do not do a great job of giving people who have high energetic sensitivity skills to go with their capacity. And what ends up happening is the world is overwhelming. 
And there's often a way that they they just shut down and their guts shut down because that's the place where they're feeling everything. And like you said, it's just loud. It is so cacophonous. I just have to like tune it out. And they start to live, you know, up in their heads and their thoughts rather than in the sensory. They're they're sensing themselves and their body. So then if I, sorry to interrupt, I was just thinking if I have always had kind of felt like the body is not a safe place, maybe I'm in a larger body, then I believe I'm going to be pretty disconnected from the body and the feelings that are going on within it. Like I I do not often, the individuals we work with with food addiction are, are maybe in a larger body than they want to be. And even in eating disorder, body doesn't always feel safe. It doesn't feel like home. So do you have to then create a relationship with body before you start doing some of this work, which I imagine involves like mindful eating? So I think there's a couple of things I want to talk about. And one is this experience of being in larger bodies, because being in a larger body, this is where, again, this conversation, if we list, if we recognize the experience, and we look at it through a diet culture perspective and a fat phobia perspective, the experience of being in a larger body in and of itself pretty dangerous. Absolutely terrifying. To be in a larger body in our society, right, is very scary because one of the, sometimes the actual threat that is directed at you, right, the danger as well as the lack of safety, which is the the lack of of welcome, of belonging. There's no chairs for me to sit in, right? Mm -hmm. There's, you know, know, it's not just the vitriol and the judgment that can be placed upon me, but it is just also the lack of access to, to, to medical care, right? You know, I mean, so, and that's dangerous as well as, that's, that's physically dangerous as well as relationally dangerous and harmful. So I just need to, to say that for, to welcome people in larger bodies, to say it's not that simple. It's like, I, I got to look at the layers, right? And so the embodied recovery model is really looking at not the size and shape of the body, but how you are in the body you're in. Because there can be people who are in large bodies who are very embodied and really engaged. And there can be people in very small bodies or even in very fit bodies who are not actually embodied, who are overriding their body signals all the time and and basically dissociated. And so it can be really, that's one of the, I think the first things we have to do is just say, you know, you cannot tell just by the shape and size what's going on and what someone's relationship with themselves, their world and food is. Okay. So so basically you're trying to take some variation of dissociation, which could even be addictive behavior, and then trying to embody the person, remove the dissociation and get them reconnected as it were. Right. Right. And so in that way, maybe it's time to bring in one of of these other maps that, that came from, that came to me through sensory my motor psychotherapy, although I think has its roots in Franz Pearl's work in the sensitivity cycle. So it, it went from, I think, Pearl's to Ron Kurtz at Hakomi to Pat Ogden and somewhere in there, I you know, then I got it. And it's called the action cycle now. And what we're, it's, it's great because we can start with a behavioral lens kind of, which is often where we're starting. We're seeing a behavior. And we're going to think, okay, well, what goes into that action? Well, let, 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 let's, let's, let's be really specific. A behavior like binge eating. Let's, okay. let's apply it to. Okay. Like binge eating. Okay. So the first stage in this cycle, well, we can depend, you know, it's a cycle, so you can start anywhere, but let's start at the stage that they call clarity. And when we're talking about our relationship with food, what clarity would be is clear hunger or fullness cues. Like I'm really getting accurate information from my body, from my gut up to my brain, and I can differentiate it. And I also know what I really want. Like I'm really getting very clear, clear sent signals. So I can say, okay, I am hungry and I need protein. I'm hungry 
or I'm not hungry, I'm thirsty. Or, okay, wait, this thing I'm feeling, it's not hunger. I'm actually anxious. And what I need to do is breathe, you know, or I'm not hungry. I'm not anxious. I'm lonely. You know, it's like, do I have clarity on what's going on? The second stage would be called, I think they call it effectiveness. And really what that's saying is now that I know I can go and get what I want and I have the capacity to, to, I have access to the food that I really need, whatever, or, or the nutrition, let's take it into nutrition, right? I know I need something. I have access to it. I have the capacity to collect it, prepare the food, right? Plate it, decide. Okay. Then the second one is called satisfaction. And this phase is that I can actually experience the benefit of the action I just took. So in this case, it would be, I can actually eat it. I can experience it. I can feel the motor experience of ingestion. We're talking about ingestion and I can start the process of digestion, right? And like, you know, I, I'm, I'm secreting the right enzymes. It's starting to feel like, oh yeah, that hunger I was feeling up at clarity yeah. is going, okay, I got the right thing, right? I'm taking it in with my eyes, with my nose, with my teeth, with my, with my tongue. Yeah. Right? And I can respond right? And then the next stage is, is, is relaxation. And that is where I'm like, okay, I can stop ingesting and I can go into that metabolic process of absorption. Which is really, you've just defined mindful eating in its essence, haven't you? Well, yes. And (laughs) it's like, yes. And because the, I mean, yes, if we can really be aware at all of those stages that eating, we aren't just talking yeah. about ingestion process. It takes this whole thing. And the, the, the thing is, is that if we don't actually finish and if we, if we don't have access to that engaged, relaxed state, then we do not have access, full access to the clarity of what we want next. Which now we're yeah, gonna- that's that's the problem, right? And Most so individuals can't find the clarity. Right. So binging mm-hmm. can be a result of what we would call barriers to effective action at any one of those four stages. Because if I don't know, if I can't feel hunger and I can't, or accurate hunger, I can't discern and I can't really feel when I'm full. You know, I... I- I got to say something because I just find this really intriguing. I remember when I was in a binge in my previous life and I I read about it with other people, they're very aware of the food going down. I mean, we can almost call it an eating addiction. It's not just the food. It's the actual focus of eating. And there's some level of I'm trying to get something and I can't. And so if I keep trying, I'm going to get it. And is this a way to perceive that phenomena? Absolutely. Because I may know I'm hungry, but I may not know what I'm hungry for. Yes. Would be what we would call an insight barrier. Or I may know what I'm hungry for, but when we go to that effectiveness stage, I'm not allowed. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Now, and this can happen, like, let's say that rule of I'm not allowed to, to reach out for what I want. Now that can happen in relationship to something else, right? That can happen in relationship to, you know, as a child, you know, don't touch that. Don't touch it. Don't be curious. Do what you do what you're told, right? When in that stage of life, when we're starting to be autonomous and have will and, you know, no, I want to do it my way. And it's like, no, you have to do it, you know, this way we learn. I, I have to, I can only reach out for what I want. I mean, for what I'm told, right? So we develop this relationship with our own want and that can then get applied when what I want is something, you know, who knows, something nourishing. Well, I can only get this. What I want is comfort, Mm -hmm. but it's not available. I'm not supposed to cry. I'm not, you know, I'm not supposed to need that. Or sometimes I just want the end of the craving, the end, that sense of satisfaction, which I guess is that. But here's the thing is that like, if I can't reach out for what I want, I can get something that's pleasant or pleasing, but not satisfying. 
Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, so then we would have a, new, a nourishment barrier because I can't, act, you know, you can never get, you can never get enough of what you don't really need. Right. And so it's like, I do this all the time because I have sometimes a difficulty differentiating hunger from thirst. Mm-hmm. And so what do I end up doing is I end up like eating something when what I really need to do is drink something. And I don't know why, you know, it's like, so I do that until I no longer feel the sensation that I was feeling that is really thirst. You know, I'm feeling a fullness that is louder than the feeling that I was having before. And that's, I think, what you were talking about of, I just want the craving to go away. So I'm going to induce another sensory experience that's louder than the craving. I I just want to repeat this for people because I think it's amazing what you said. You can never get enough of what you don't really need. That's fabulous. The definition of addiction. Exactly. And what I want to say too, though, is that, well, around that, yeah, it's like, I think addiction often is an attempt at getting some of the effect of what we really need when the source of what we really need is not available to us for whatever reason, for whatever reason, right? And it's not, I'm sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say, when you say the source, immediately I think, well, what is the source? It's the need for connection. So then we can talk about treatment, right? Say that again. But now we can talk about treatment because is there is there more theory that you need to talk about? Because well, let's get to the treatment. Well, I think the, the last piece is that, that relaxation phase because yeah. this is a place where in order for us to actually let go of whatever we've been collecting and ingesting and taking in and holding on to, in order for us to actually let go and not feel like we're going to fall into an abyss of nothing and no one and loneliness, right? We have to really have a one of the somatic capacity for what we call yielding of how to just be in relationship with my environment without having to do something, to know that I belong without having to achieve and having to perform and having to earn my place. That is a really hard thing to do in our society. And also that capacity for yield can, you know, can be held in the body from a very, very early, early age, right? You know, it's even in utero, we can develop that capacity or have that capacity truncated. So, you know, and until we, if we don't fully stop, we can't really fully start. And and so I think that that's something for us to really hold to because, there are ways that our society encourages addiction, but they just want us to do it in a socially acceptable way. And that's like right on. <laughs> I think we're all clapping when we hear that statement. Okay, so in another the- another term that I see you use a lot is window of tolerance. Is that something that's relevant to our conversation? Absolutely. I think it overlaps and overlays with the polyvagal theory in a lovely way, in right. that what it's saying is, and you know, this is we when in our trainings we we nuance this quite a bit but you know that there's a range of neurological regulation where we have a optimal capacity to engage with self and other in a balanced way in a congruent way and that neurologically in those places where ventral vagal is engaged we have access to lower brain stem you know somatic function and physiology, regulated physiology, regulated emotion, which doesn't mean that you don't have emotion. It's just that it's regulated and frontal cortex function in this window of optimal arousal or the window of tolerance. And that's where we have the capacity for all of those stages of the action cycle. So in a sense, it's the goal of of treatment. Is to, yes, is to expand the window. Okay. Right? And we do that through engaging relationship and building capacity for relationship and looking what's going on in the attachment system. Where have there been attachment wounds? Mm. Where's the room for attachment repair? Okay, so let's get to treatment. And let's, uh, Chrissy, if you want to take it over, but I'm just going to present this and then Chrissy, please pursue. Chrissy's our our person that does the clinical work uh, more than I do. Uh, So person comes to you and they're struggling with food addiction, binge eating, we don't know which it is. What do you do? Ah, well, the first thing, 
I do is what I do when you ask me that question, just I kind of go, oh, I, I breathe, right? Because I can feel the urgency in the question. And the last thing that's going to be helpful is for me to meet urgency with urgency, because then there's no co-regulation. So the first thing I do is I breathe and I, and I check in with myself and I see how am I welcoming them, right? And then we start to get curious. And I think one thing that we can do is we kind of can assess we're on the action cycle, right? When do they have those binge urges, right? How do they know what they want? Classic one, nighttime. 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 Or oh, it, it, yeah. in the evening, can't get to sleep unless I have my tub of ice cream. Oh, okay. Oh, so there's something about having something sweet before you go to bed, huh? Yeah. Oh, cool. Right, yeah. So we get curious about that. And we just sort of say, so... What is it? What, how does that? So there's something about landing and resting that's kind of hard to do. Well, you know, I, I I could just speak for myself. I'm terrified to go to sleep without that feeling full and having that 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 reassurance of whatever ice cream gives me. Yeah, yeah. So there's something about the sensation in your belly that helps you feel safe and helps you kind of go. It's okay for me to to turn off my thinking mind, my attending mind, and helps me come inside. It helps me land inside in that that parasympathetic rest state. I'm even going to add and say it actually feels maternal. I'm being held in some way. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. How, how brilliant of your body to know that in order for you to rest, you need to have that feeling of being like held and loved. That sounds like so smart. I love that your body knows that. Okay, but at two in the morning when I wake up, it's gone and I need to do it again. And hey, look at me, I'm big. It's not working. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, I'm urgent, I need your help. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, so there's, I, I guess I, I, again, in that moment where, yeah, you're big, what does big mean? What does big mean to you? Right. So I might I might want to say like, okay, like start to tease apart that. It's like, yeah, you are, you're big. How wonderful. Like there's a lot of you, huh? Ah. And I hate it. And so does everybody else around me. They're always telling me I'm ugly. So you know what? I I don't know what to do because I I have to Ah. eat. That's the only thing I can do to get Ah. comfort. Right. So so there's that strong message that. That you're too much, huh? Oh, well, that doesn't sound very maternal. Oh, gosh, right. So, you know, we aren't going to, you know, so you see what we start to do is to tease apart mm-hmm. and make some space between the narrative and start to be able to bring in the body. Right? We're going to start to, to say like, oh, yeah, those messages that experience of attachment that I'm too much. And my guess is that I'm going to, I'm going to just, you know, as long as we're going, you know, on this hypothetical, that the message I'm too much came long before I had the physical form I have today. Mm -hmm. Right. And that experience of, you know, this discrepancy between what I need and what's available, you know, what's too much and what's not enough. Right. That, excess and scarcity, right? It's the same thing. If we can look at excess and scarcity are the same thing. If we look at it through the lens of this, of attachment, which is, and polyvagal and embodied recovery, right? Is that they are both the absence of enough. Mm, I see. And the felt sense. Of it's enough. true because excess hurts. Excess hurts. Scarcity hurts yeah. and people will keep themselves in scarcity to avoid excess. They will right. keep an excess to avoid scarcity. Whether you're talking about, you know, people who are, you know, hoarding chopsticks from takeout, you know, like, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, you know, that depression era feeling of like, we have to save everything, you know, versus I can't buy anything for myself or I can't, you know, it's like, cause I don't want it to be too much. 
right? Or the restricting, like this is what right. keeps restricting. restricting. Right. right. And so that 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 completion barrier, that sense that that goes in the relaxation. If I can't relax, we call it a completion barrier. Mm-hmm. That can be, you know, I'm I'm I keep going because I until like I when we're talking about binge eating, I can keep going until I hurt until I fall asleep, until the food runs out. Something else is going to, you know, make me stop, right? Mm-hmm. Or it can be, I'm not even going to start because I can't finish. I don't know what enough is. I'm in that perfectionism, right? That can draw. So, you know, it's not, that's where we come back, you know, from an embodied recovery lens is that abstinence can help with one aspect of I can't stop. But really what you're you're still holding onto is that yeah. scarcity versus excess and in the absence of my body's capacity to be in that ventral vagal balance place of and where is, sympathetic and, the, and my parasympathetic support each other. And this is the essence of where binge eating and eating disorders share. It, it's that dilemma between it's, both of them. Yeah. Right. And we could say that that's what both of them, you know, from this perspective, that's the hub. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're talking about is the absence of the ability to organize cognitively, emotionally, somatically around enough. Okay, so so what do I do with this now? So as you were doing this with me, I can tell you my feedback. I felt comforted because you were listening to me. You were understanding me. I felt heard, but I still want to eat. So what? Wh- where do you go from there? <laughs> like, as, as a so what part of you wants to eat? Where do you feel that? Right. So like, okay, I can yeah. role play this. Yeah. And and you know, I, I'll tell you, you know, us doing this over a Zoom call is is going to be, you know somewhat effective but let's well let's try this let's try this so so you still feel like like you want to eat where where is that in your in your body can you feel it it's actually more above the stomach believe it or not it's more of an ache it's more of an ache ache. yeah 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 and your hand comes right to like in front of your sternum your heart yeah 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 and it's that feeling that i'll never get enough this is almost almost as if i could cry because I just can't get what I need. Yeah, yeah, and your hands come out as yeah. if they, yeah. So I yeah. wonder if we could if we could just try something, uh-huh. and and see, you know, something that that goes with this this ache in the front and the way your hands reach out, right? And what we might try is if you were here, yes. But I would maybe get get some things to play with, right? And you might have it in your office now. We might try and find like, I wonder if you could find like a, a big pillow. Do you have a pillow? Mm, I do. I'm sitting on one. Great, great, great. You know what? I'm going to run and get one too. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. We both have a, for people who can't see us, we both have a pillow. We both have a pillow. And what I'm going to invite you to do, yeah, is first. My mommy pillow. <laughs> see what it's like to let your hands rest on it. You know, maybe like, just see what happens. Oh, yeah. They like really want to grab hold, huh? Yeah. 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 So notice and notice what happens if your hands like, do they like the, the feeling of the pillow? Can they feel it? Yes. It, it's a it's a feeling of comfort, I have to admit. Yeah. Great. So, yeah. So just let your nervous system drink in, you know, and be nourished by what so it's what- like. What you're doing is diverting my my need for comfort from food to an actual other sensation. I'm not diverting it. Okay. I'm actually addressing it. I'm listening to it. Ah, there we go. What if we were to take that pillow and bring it? If you hold it kind of like more like a diamond shape, right? So and just bring that right up to where mm-hmm. your that place in your heart that was so hungry. This is the teddy bear uh, position. Yeah, yeah. And just notice that. Notice what happens when you've got this this soft or this pillow and noticing like, can your, how does your sternum know mm. the pillow is there? It, 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 I feel it. And it does feel like a comfort. I have to, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. Oh. 
And it is calming. It's calming, right? Yeah. 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 Now I'm speaking as a food addict in recovery. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, I can because it's the same thing. It's a nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. System. And it's and what we're doing is we're listening to the body, right? So when we talk about the embodied recovery for eating disorders model, we've got these four principles, which we may or may not get to, but one of them is that our what, what are called the eating disorder behaviors, or we could say the addictive behaviors, is the body's way of speaking. If we can listen to the body that speaks through five sense perception, internal sensation, and movement, if we if we really understand those languages and can speak them, then we can start to really help the human have access to the nourishment they need. And nourishment comes in so many different forms. We're talking about how do we take in energy? And as human beings, the first thing we do as human beings is connect. It is our most basic instinct capacity if we didn't connect we would not be alive if the sperm and the ovum didn't connect we mm-hmm. wouldn't if a fertilized ovum doesn't connect with the side of the uterus we wouldn't be alive that's good i like this yeah and so you know that's why you know in even in 12 step stuff right what are we doing it's not it's not enough to eliminate something. What do we add? Recovery is an additive process. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the phrase, the opposite of addiction is connection. Like it's so essential. Yes. Exactly. And so, you know, and Vera, we might even play with how it would have been different if I had said, when you said, what do I do what I do? If I had said, well, what you need to do when you wake up is to comfort yourself. <laughs> don't go get don't go get food, but just you know, tell yourself you're loved. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's that. I would say that's nice talk, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yes, and it wouldn't have even been the same if I had just said, "So Vera, go get a pillow," and what I want you to do is to put that you know against your chest. Your nervous system is brilliant. It's so much smarter than your frontal cortex alone, you know, our cognitions are, are, are one dis- distinction I, I've started to be able to articulate is that we really need to distinct, distinct, differentiate <laughs> between cognitions and consciousness, hmm. right? CBT, these top-down models are very much about cognition, yes, which is different than working with consciousness. Consciousness can be, cognitions can be the language that describes consciousness, their thoughts, right? But consciousness is awareness. So, and so that a consciousness would be an example of how I saw you go and pick up a pillow and hold it in the same way as you were asking me to do. Right. And, then, and, and stroke it in the same way that I was doing. Right. And you, you saw it, you heard it, you felt it. You know, there's there's that right brain to right brain. Right. Yes. In neuroception, which is, you know, Porges's word of just how do we take in this information? And we know, we know the difference on some level. If our nervous systems are available, if that ventral vagal system is available to orient to safety. So we're, so what as therapist to client, it's, the sensory motor, it's not just the listening, the cognition, it's the whole package. So uh, we're, we're getting low on time. Is there anything else about the, this approach that is useful for us to hear uh, in terms of the healing of either in eating disorder or food addiction? Well, I think maybe one thing is, you know, our, one of the other one of one of our principles is that sometimes we have to nourish the body before it can take in nourishment. Okay. Eating is a very complex action and a very complicated way to get nourishment. And if the body isn't resourced enough, it doesn't have the capacity to do all of those steps that go into taking in food. 
And sometimes we have to nourish the body through touch, through sound, through love, through belonging, through safety, through connection, in order for, for that ventral vagal system to come on online, right? And for us then to build the capacity to do all of those other actions that go into what we might call regulated eating, normative eating. You know, it's got all these names, right? But maybe it's just congruent with with a regulated nervous system. No, I was just going to say, if this has appealed to any of our listeners, where could they find you? What should they be seeking out in terms of, you know, this form of therapy? Sure. So um, what we do at the Embodied Recovery Institute is we train people who are providers, and that can be anything from program directors to physicians, to dietitians, therapists, yoga teachers, we have, you know, anybody on the treatment team. And massage therapists, no? Massage therapists, craniosacral yeah. therapists. And we we have trainings and you can find us at www.embodiedrecovery.org. And it's the Embodied Recovery Institute. On our website is a link to find a provider. Not everyone who's taken our training has signed up and is listed there. The Institute doesn't provide clinical services. We're really here to support, to support providers, but also to try and change the dialogue and, you know, yeah, and, and just offer a different lens. Okay. So just, just as a summary, then the one way to see a disordered eating in whatever way that we want to call it that is that it, it's a person who's feeling on various parts of that action cycle, thwarted and not able to complete so that they are essentially forever unsatisfied and therefore needing to seek that satisfaction. And what you're suggesting is that really what they're, they're, they're looking in the wrong place. Like you said, you can never get enough of what you don't need. So what we want to do is give them what they need. And so then that quest, that internal hunger will be filled. Absolutely. I would add just one other thing. Yes. Sometimes we can give them what they need, but we also have to tend to the injury, the attachment injury that right. may impede them actually being able to take in. Even if it's there, you know, there are things that inhibit us reaching out and being able to take it in. Like and trauma. It, like trauma. Yeah. And so if, you know, it's not enough to say, oh, well, here, you know, I'm safe. I mean, if I'm not willing to journey with you through the fear and the grief that goes with the injury, then we're asking someone to muscle through something and and kind of have to dissociate from the fear and grief in order to take it in. And then we don't really metabolize that food, whether it's relational food or, you know, fruits and vegetables. You know, it, it sounds like a very compassionate approach. Like you're, you're really focusing on the compassion that, that, that so, so many of us need. Absolutely. Absolutely. In that moment. And that's definitely when individuals come to see us, that's the one thing they're lacking, right? And and we have to teach them so that they can start to get in the recovery process because nobody gets into recovery beating themselves up all day, every day. I say you can't you can't scare someone out of being afraid. And you can't shame somebody out of feeling bad about themselves. Just, yes. You've got some great lines. <laughs> it is. Taglines. So we do have a signature question, and I guess I'll kind of frame it for you. So what would you tell maybe a younger version of yourself? Something about embodiment practices, embodiment recovery for someone with eating disorder or food addiction. What would I tell my younger self about that? Yeah. Or yeah. Now with knowing what you know now, seeing somebody with like eating disorder and food addiction. So the first thing that popped in my head is you're not crazy. (laughs) You're not crazy. What you feel is real. You may not understand it and you may not have all of the skills yet to, to know what to do with it, but you're not crazy. You're not wrong. This is your superpower. Learn, find teachers. It's so wonderful. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank Thank you so much for, for giving me the opportunity to talk with you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. 
Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group. I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.